The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. doing good today. Hey, uh, we're in uh, a series, James, Back to the Basics, and we're going to be in James chapter 2. If you got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there. If you got a smartphone with a Bible app, you can go there <clears throat> as well. You might have noticed, you probably didn't, but you might have noticed how on the announcement video, I think last week and the week before we talked about a textile drive coming up, but the truth is that's kind of a foreign word in the world we live in anymore. So I think people were concerned or, or not concerned, confused about what a textile drive even is. And so we changed the wording to a clothing drive. And I wanted to clarify real quick, you know, I, I looked up the word textile. And um, just so you know, textile is an umbrella term that includes various fiber-based materials, including fibers, yarns, filaments, threads, and different fabric types, etc. So just something you should maybe need to know or you can learn, you can pick up for your word of the day vocabulary. Also, as I scroll down a little bit, um, there, are, there are certain beaches that are nude beaches and others that are textile beaches. So you can figure out the difference there and that's a, that's a freebie for you. I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> so, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna pray and then we're gonna move on really quickly. So um, Jesus, today I thank you for your work. In all of us, I, I do pray that your spirit would continue to challenge us as we consider our faith, as we look at James, back to the basics, that there are certain basic things about our faith that you want us to walk out well. And I pray for clarity as we walk this journey together. I also pray in the midst of a world that feels out of control, we see in the news things going on in the Middle East, and yes, we believe we ought to pray um, for Jerusalem and, and, and the peace there, but also, God, I pray salvation. I pray your covering. I pray your work for every hostage, God. I pray for your spirit to move in the midst of uh, individuals that are at war. I pray, God, again, that covering and that sense of, of, of your work in the midst of all that is happening, and again, at the core of what I pray, just like in our own communities that I believe matter, salvation. That, that somehow Christ would be known in the midst of something that is difficult, that is challenging, even prophetically sometimes, to understand I'm grateful for your work, for your lordship, for your presence in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. I want to continue to pray as you look at what's going on in the news and check out, you know, kind of the Middle East stuff. So be praying for that. As we jump into James chapter 2, um, Evan did a great job last week talking about uh, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And, and then we opened up talking about how James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing a letter to uh, 12 tribes scattered among the nations, and it was persecution because James was a leader of the church of Jerusalem. And as they were scattered because of persecution, he was writing saying, hey, keep your heads on straight. Here's some things to walk out about your faith. And and when you get to chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, My brothers and sisters, <clears throat> believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, this conversation at the core is about not showing favoritism. And on one hand, it's easy in our world maybe to write this off as there are certain people that are maybe bigots, that are, are racist, that, that you know, prejudge all the time. But that isn't me. I'm good. This doesn't apply to me. Let me encourage you. Let me challenge you to open your heart in this conversation because we all at times have a tendency to show favoritism in a certain way. And I'm going to try to talk a bit about this, but I love how in the New Living Translation of the first verse, It's actually written as a question. How can you claim to have faith if you show favoritism? And the question, the way that it's written in the New Living Translation, is meant to be a rhetorical question because the simple answer is you're not. You don't get to. Favoritism doesn't belong in the heart of a believer in Jesus because as Paul would say, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, which quick time out, there are some notes there in front of you, especially if you're in a life group, you can follow along, write some things down. But also, even if you're not in a group, it might be good to be a little note taker and sketch some things down. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, twice he reminds us, we are convinced that one died for all. And he'll go on to verse 15 and say, he died for all. What does that mean? We believe that that when you look at our theology, what we believe about God and our sociology, our study of society and culture, when you put those two things together, Jesus paid the price for every single person on the planet, not one person excluded. There's no room within the realm of our faith in Jesus to somehow write off certain people because they don't agree with you, because they live opposite of things that you think are virtuous, because they come from a different background or have a different skin tone or or were raised in a different culture. Whatever it might be, those things must be set aside because we're called to not show favoritism. There's no place for this in the heart of anybody that calls himself a believer. In other words, through the lens of the cross, every person has immense value. And James says, suppose someone walks in and in our day, maybe they're not, you know, dressed nice and wearing fine clothes, but they come in and they got a Bentley. They come in and they got some shoes that are, I don't know what, you know, $800 or some crazy thing. Assume they come from somebody with means or some situation with means and we want to cozy up. And it may not (coughs) simply be because they're rich, but let me challenge all of us. In verse four, (coughs) excuse me, at the core He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, what does he mean by that? Discrimination, obviously we go, well, we don't want discrimination. But when he says judges with evil thoughts, what does he mean? Well, let me give you a little bit of what he's talking about here. Is it possible that when you get to know somebody and you realize that maybe they come from money and boy, if you became friends with them and they're season ticket holders to your favorite sports team and boy, if I got to know them, what if they maybe gave me some tickets to a game? 
Oh, they have a lot of means and they got all kinds of toys and they live next door and there's quads and, you know, uh, 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 jet skis and all the stuff. And they're the kind of people that, boy, by the time it's three or four years old, it's time to replace it. And instead of selling it, what if they gave one to me? And if I got to know them, maybe they'd give it to me. Or maybe it's as simple as they have a certain business that maybe they own and you simply go, I don't care for my job. And boy, if I got to know them, maybe I could get a job. Or boy, I got a son that's this age and they have a daughter that's that age. And what if I got to play Cupid, right? There's all kinds of ways this conversation plays out. But James says, when you do that, you're discriminating. So there's that side of the coin how would my life be beneficial if I got to know that person? But the other side of the coin is this. What about the person who, and James would use the word poor, what about the person who's poor? <coughs> they don't have means. They don't have it all together. In fact, for some of us, let's be honest, in our discrimination, if I build a bridge towards that person, if I get to know them, if I take them to coffee, if I have a conversation in the lobby and I realize their life is a bit more disheveled than mine is, heaven forbid that I get to know them and I realize they can't pay their, 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 their car payment, but I have the means to and now I got to give them a couple hundred bucks to help them make their car payment or buy them groceries, or do something that's going to mean taking what is mine and giving it to help them. See, it doesn't just play one way where if somebody has means, you cozy up. But the other side of the conversation is if they have the opposite. They don't have a lot. But if I get to know them, now I've got to give of myself. Do we discriminate? Are we judges with evil intent? And again, this is a conversation that we all need to be aware of. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? So what, what James does is he flips the conversation on its head. He says the, the, the poor are actually rich. Why? And if you just take it at face value and stop and think for a moment about the conversation, what he's saying is this. It's amazing how when somebody doesn't have it all together and their life isn't so easy and they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and somehow make their lives what they want them to be, how they realize their need. And oftentimes, in the world of means versus no means, it's those who maybe don't have means that realize they need something far greater than their own power, far greater than their own strength, far greater than their ability to make something of their own lives. And what do they do? They find themselves going, I must need God, compared to sometimes the individual who has it all together. They come from generational money or they've established themselves. And again, they can make something out of their lives and they're good enough to make it happen. Anybody ever read um, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament? Ecclesiastes is, is, is kind of this exploratory conversation by Solomon about life. And in this letter, this book that he writes, he's considering what life is about. And he says this meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. And then he goes into all these different ways that he tried to find purpose in life. And he says, I had had, you know, all these individuals that reported to me and, and I had the power and authority and position for people to look at me and go, wow, you're somebody that's amazing and powerful and awesome. And I find that having that kind of influence came to nothing. 
And, and I was, you know, I managed to get a lot of wealth and I had traders, you know, shipping all over and bringing goods and, 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 and amassed a large amount of money and that didn't mean anything. And I created beautiful gardens in my backyard and I had curtains and I had all kinds of animals. He basically creates this elaborate, beautiful zoo that people would come to and marvel at. And he said, at the core, even that was meaningless. I had relationships with females and romance and, 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 and they wanted me and I wanted them and I thought that could do it and that didn't do the trick. And over and over throughout Ecclesiastes, he says, I tried all of these things. I, I thought maybe I could find fulfillment or purpose within them. And in the end, he says, all of it amounts to nothing except when you and I look through the lens of, our, you know, of, of life when we look through the lens of our faith in God and how that impacts the way that we live. That's the whole book of Ecclesiastes. You never need to read it again. Just kidding, you should. But really at the end he says, at the conclusion of the matter is, you could try all this stuff, but you've got to have God at the core. You've got to have this reverence and awe about him and your purpose in him. And that's where your purpose plays out. He says, and again, aside from are you rich or poor, do you understand your spiritual condition? Remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Anybody remember the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. James is actually reiterating what Jesus already has said. It's those that realize whether, again, you have means or you don't, your need for God in your life your shortcoming in your own strength and ability to somehow provide for yourself. He says, but you dishonor the poor. And, and he talks about how the way you dishonor the poor is showing favor to the rich. It, it's, it's trying to get them in your corner as some sort of motive to get some sort of power off of them, influence off of them, wealth off of them. And then he says, it's the rich who flaunt their riches. It's the rich who have the money to exploit the poor. And the poor have no means to, to go to court because the rich can pay for the lawyer. It's the poor who can't seem to get the raise because it's the rich who have it all. And they can just fire them on him in a minute. He says it's the rich who seem to think they have it all, and yet they're the ones that are, in fact, poor. And it's the poor in spirit who are rich. Then he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as, the, as lawbreakers. Okay, now follow me here. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in, in just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And so question for you, how many of you would say, according to the Old Testament law, you're a lawbreaker? Just raise your hand. Okay, now just everybody go like this. Okay, and that's the right answer to the question. Okay, we are all lawbreakers. The problem is you go, well, I haven't murdered. Well, I've never stolen. Well, I don't gossip. Well, I'm not holding on to bitterness. Well, I don't deal with anger. And, and, and maybe you don't do those things, but maybe you slander people behind their back. Uh-oh, James says you get it all right, but this part, guess what? You fail the whole thing. Like where's the grading on a curve? Hey, come on, that's not fair. I would liken it to in the world that you and I live in. And we talk about it as a church all the time. I say, man, be a reader of scripture. You guys, this daily habit is so powerful to read scripture on your own and chew on it and think about it and let the Holy Spirit convict you with it. Man, I'm learning to do that. And I come on Sundays and I'm, I even take notes. 
I got dialed into a life group. Man, I'm, I'm learning what it means to pray. When you guys talked about giving last week, man, I went on there and I, I even gave some stuff. But I hate my neighbor. I hate people around me. Wouldn't you feel like something is off? If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 13, it says love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And some of you have that on a plaque on your wall in your dining room. Some of you have it crocheted on a pillow in your bedroom. And some of you had it read at your wedding. And they're great words, but do you know how that chapter actually opens? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I am I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Why does Paul say that? Because again, you can do all kinds of great things, but at the core, if there's not love, it's empty. If there's not love, it's worthless. If love isn't at the core of what's going on, you miss it. And that's the thing about, about being a follower of Jesus. Like I said, show up on a Sunday and learn. Figure out how to read the Bible. Let us help you learn how to pray. We pray every Wednesday night, 6.30 to 7.30. Get dialed into a life group. Give, be generous, awesome. But if it's not changing your ability to love, something is drastically missing. Speak and act, James says in verse 12. Speak and act, listen to this, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If I was you, I would underline those verses. I would highlight those verses. I would figure out how to maybe memorize those verses because those are critically important to how your faith plays out. Because, again, James is repeating some of what Jesus had to say because Jesus said this, if you forgive your brother from your heart, then guess what? God forgives you. The exact opposite is also true. If you refuse to forgive someone, then you limit God's ability to forgive you. And I'm not gonna water those down or, 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 or mince words about it or beat around the bush. That's what Jesus means. If you can't extend mercy to others, you don't get mercy. And again, I'm not gonna water that down. Plain and simple, that's what it means. If you don't figure out how to walk in grace and mercy among those you interact with day to day, the life that you live in your marriage, your kids, your family, or friendships, or work, or wherever it is, 
if your love quotient, your grace quotient, your mercy quotient isn't increasing, something's wrong. And James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. <clears throat> Let me help you here. Because what happens is we, we hear that the law that gives freedom and, and we don't necessarily, under, well, what does that mean? Because for those of us in the new covenant, Jesus, we're not bound to the old covenant, the law, the law of Moses. We're not bound to that. So we're, we're, we don't, these regulations, we don't have to worry about. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says those things are obsolete, meaning they're done because there's a better way. For those of us in Christ, that's the better way. But James keeps referring to this idea of the law. If you're taking notes, write down chapter 1, verse 25. James says, the perfect law that sets you free. James 1.21, right before that, he says, the word God planted in your heart that has the power to save your souls. In chapter 2, verse 8, he refers to it as the royal law. And in verse 12, he refers to it as the law that gives freedom. What is he talking about? And the dead giveaway is chapter 2, verse 8, because he says, um, the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, Jesus sums up the entirety of the old covenant law with, with two basic laws. Anybody remember what they are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's to sum up everything. So when James talks about this idea of this law that we're bound to, he's not talking old covenant law. He's talking about the command Jesus gave us in John 13, verse 34. Write that down. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you go out and love one another. So if you want to walk out this law that gives freedom, if you want the grace that, 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 that Jesus needs to extend to you, you need to be gracious to others. In other words, love God and love people so well that it opens their hearts to who Christ is. Help them see by the grace you extend the kind of grace God extends to you and to them all the time. Don't show favoritism. Love all people. Let the royal law, the perfect law, be your directive, including both friend and enemy. And then James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but doesn't have deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. One of you says to them, go be warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And, and if you have a study Bible or the kind of Bible that has subtitles for sections, it seems like this is a whole nother conversation. And while James does change topics, this conversation is directly related to favoritism. Because what James is saying is he says, don't show favoritism. Give mercy because people need mercy. Give grace because people need grace. And realize that your faith ought to produce action. Action that doesn't show favoritism. Action that loves others as we love ourselves. Action that says we love God and we love people. My faith changes my perspective and therefore changes my actions. Period. 
Kevin Gear, a friend of mine in Kalispell, says it this way, truth demands a response. And I love that because it's simple. Truth demands a response. That for you and I, there's things that, that we, we learn about as we read scripture, that we learn about as we gather in a room like this, that we learn about, but it's not just that we know it, it's that we learn to walk that out. Truth demands a response. Another way to say it would be what you believe determines how you behave. Dallas Willard, Ronnie Anderson bought me a book last week and, and I've been wanting to read Dallas Willard for a long time. And so she bought this book randomly and, and, and so I've been reading it. And in, in my studies, I was like, that applies directly to this conversation. What you believe determines how you behave. And this book he wrote, he says, the ultimate freedom, listen to this, the ultimate freedom that we have as individuals is the power to select what we will allow or require our minds to think about, to dwell upon and think about. By think, we mean all the ways in which we're made aware of things, including our memories, our perceptions, and beliefs. The focus of your thoughts significantly affects everything else that happens in your life and evokes the feelings that frame your world and motivate your actions. We know it's true. He goes on to say, one of the most powerful elements within the realm of our minds is that of our ideas. Our ideas form the belief system upon which we base our actions and decisions, and these in turn determine the trajectory of our lives. Going back to that whole idea of what we think, and what we think comes out of you and I studying scripture and inviting the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us. And so as we're made aware of certain truths, we deal with where our lives aren't congruent with those truths. Here's the truth. My life doesn't line up with it. What changes? I change the truth or I change myself. Well, people all over our world and our culture change the truth all the time. It's why you hear all the time. That's my truth. That doesn't even make any sense. But anyways, for you and I, if we're followers of Christ, we're reading scripture and studying it. When my life doesn't line up, I repent. I deal with it. I navigate where I'm off base. I don't get to change what it says. There's all kinds of dangers in that. He says if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have deeds, can such a faith save them? The answer is no. Because that faith ought to impact how we live. If your faith is only connected to your eternal destination, it's worthless for this world. And God does not want our faith to be worthless for this world. Please hear that. Our faith is supposed to be effective. Our faith is supposed to be the light on a lampstand or the city on a hill or the salt that adds flavor to food. That's how we're, we ought to live. With a, with a sense of, of vibrancy, a sense of passion, a sense of, of life that people begin to go, what is that about you? And that we can boldly say, it's Jesus in me. And yet we shy away from it. I don't want to say that. I don't want people to think that. What if they think I'm a weirdo? You're already a weirdo. <laughs> Who cares? Because people are searching for something that isn't what this culture has to offer. People need something beyond how you and I are living today. Is light shining? If people are thinking of you and thinking of your character traits, what words come to mind? Short-tempered, opinionated, unhappy, greedy, frustrated. I mean, what is it? Or do they go, joy, 
Life, fun, gracious, hopeful. What words would you want to fill in those blanks? See, our faith ought to produce something that people go, what is that? I need that. Is that happening in your world? See, he says, some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. He's being funny and he's being ironic. So while you, not, you may not read the humor here, it's there. He basically is saying, you, you, you have faith that doesn't have deeds? Show me. Well, I can't because I don't have any. And James says, I'll show you my faith by how it changes my life. How it changes the way that I treat you. How it changes the way that I treat my neighbor. How it changes the way that I, I go to work and navigate relationship with people. It changes the way that I walk throughout the community and do whatever it is that I do. It changes the way that I'm a husband to my wife. It changes the way that I'm a dad to my kids. It changes. See, I, I, I've said before, like, in fact, years ago, I opened up a message with this thing that literally made my stomach churn. And I'm not gonna get into it today for the sake of time. But I basically said, Heather and I were married in 1999. For today's sake, I would say we've been married 24 years. And I love my wife, but I've had a lot of relationships outside of my marriage, all kinds of romantic exploits. And again, that makes me sick and makes me churn and it's not true. So y'all are like, what in the world? But if I were to say that, most of you in the room would go, something's not right here. He's married, but he has other relationships? He's like, what in the world? Intuitively, we know that wouldn't be okay. And again, I, like I said, it makes me feel sick to say something like that because it isn't true. Even if it was true, it hopefully would make me sick. But I say it because in the same way with your faith and with my faith, I love Jesus. And it doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want to do to be whoever I want to be. Remember, it was Jesus himself who said, if you want to live, die to yourself. You want real life? Take up your cross, follow me. And then he went like this as he went to the cross. See, James goes on to say, you believe there's one God, great. There's all kinds of people in our world that would profess, yes, I believe in God, but you also watch how their life plays out. And James would call it demon faith. Demon, even demons believe in God. But if our faith isn't changing our ability to interact with others in a, in a, in a way that has virtue, grace, mercy, encouragement, sharpening one another. He says, Abraham, wasn't what he was considered right for what he did. Verse 22 is the clincher. I'm running out of time here, but says, he says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And then Rahab, who was a prostitute and is in the lineage of Jesus. You're not talking about changing an identity in God's grace. It says, wasn't she considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? He's bringing up two simple examples of, of many in scripture 
They said they had faith. And here's how it played out in their life. They said they believed in God and it changed what they did. What we believe determines how we behave. In Matthew 25, there's some verses that ought to, to cause us to go white. Jesus says this to the crowds and again, his ministry is winding down. But he says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is talking about in the end and, and, and he's talking about himself. He says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes or, or see you sick or prison and visit you? And the king, king will reply, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. See, James says our faith mobilizes us to action. And then it takes a turn. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And again, I can't water that down. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me. I needed clothes and you didn't give me any. I was sick and in prison and you did not come to visit me. And they'll say, but Lord, when did we see you that way? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do, for the least of these you did not do for me. In other words, your faith didn't do anything. There was no action to what you said you believed about me. And verse 46, I won't skip over. He says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. James says, the natural outflow of our faith is things change. Is, is that we don't have to show favoritism. We don't have to live in fear of what can't be, so we grasp and grab for all that could be ours in this life. Our faith accompanied by action. And finally, James says in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. They must go together. Questions, and I'm gonna pray. How has your faith been changing you? As you think about it, in the last week or month, throughout the summertime or in 2023, or, or in the last bunch of years, or, or maybe you've been following Jesus since the year 2000 or before that, how has your faith in this stretch of time changed how you live? As I mentioned before in, in this message earlier, what character traits do people see when they see you? Again, questions to think about. Do you love your neighbor, whether they're likable or not? And please do not hear neighbor as my address is 7421 and there's a 7427. That's not neighbor next door necessarily. It's those people around you 
that you have opportunity to build bridges towards in relationship anywhere. Do you love your neighbor, whether they're likable or not? Is your faith put into action daily? Because this isn't Sunday. See you next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, we'll get towards Thanksgiving Sunday and Christmas Sundays and Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. It's literally understanding that, that tension in our hearts of what Jesus would do today that would change how we navigate tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday before we would show up here again to be challenged and sharpened. And then finally, and this is it, are you ready to lay down your life and surrender? Because that's what God wants of us. As Jesus says, lay down our lives. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. I want my life to be in you. You paid the price for all my sin, all my mistakes, everything I've ever done wrong and ever will do wrong. Come into my life and forgive me. I need a fresh start. That prayer. But also that prayer, God, I surrender to you that, Lord, every day of my life would be in that place of, I don't want to be my own person. I want to be who you want me to be. I want to live the way you want me to live. I want my faith to be accompanied by deeds that have virtue and life and purpose to them apart from me. Father, today, I pray, again, this isn't, hey, you people. This is all of us. And my prayer, too, is that we don't walk out of here tail between our legs because this feels like a beatdown. I pray we'd walk out of here with that sense of conviction in us. God, help us change how we live. And there are people in the room and maybe some of them even outright as we started the message, you know what, I do show favoritism a lot. And I pray you would deal with that in our hearts. And there's all kinds of motive to why. God, get to the core of what's happening that again, we don't walk out of here ashamed, but we walk out of here going, God, forgive me for getting that wrong. Would you help me too differently? When it comes to the ways that we treat those around us. And Father, where we do think about faith and deeds, that we don't just live with this idea that Jesus is in my heart and I'm gonna get to heaven, but we consider how it impacts every day that we live, not just Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. Jesus, do this work in us, challenge us. And Father, let us walk in the humility that says, Lord, where I miss it, forgive me. God, we need you. And it's in your name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.